This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Romans 15. Romans 15. Last week, we began a series on our vision and values. Our vision is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. The very first sin uh, in the Bible was the result of the greener grass conspiracy. In Eden, Satan got Adam and Eve to think if only they could eat from the one tree God told them not to eat from, they would achieve their full potential. And of course, the irony of the story is that Adam and Eve got what their hearts wanted most, and they became a thousand times worse than they were before. Adam and Eve got what their hearts wanted most and became a thousand times worse than they were before. This is the greener grass conspiracy card that our enemy plays all the time. What happened in Eden is not just a once-off historic event. It's the go-to tactic of Satan. He will get you to think, if I have that, then I'll be happy. And just like in the garden, we're lured in, we're lured in, we eat, and we find ourselves worse than we were before. Now what makes Satan's tactic so deceiving is that he attempts to allure us with good things. These are not bad things. He holds out in front of us career, money, romance, family, human approval, even religion, and so many others. And he gets us to think that these good things are the key to finding the good life. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, human history is the long, terrible story of human beings trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. That is human history's story. The gospel is all about restoring our relationship with God. It's only through the gospel that we can experience communion with God and thus find the rest and satisfaction that we're looking for. That's our vision. Now, in order to get traction and seeing our vision accomplished, we need to have some shared values, things as a congregation that we hold to resolutely. Let me show you this list of values that we need to embody. First, the Bible. God's word is an extension of God himself. It's no ordinary book. It is through it that the very presence of God is mediated. Gospel centrality. The gospel is effective. It gets things done. Third, gospel community. The church is a taste of heaven. Fourth, prayerful dependence. Prayer is ministry. And fifth, outward engagement, the church is commissioned to expand. The first two values I've preached on here before, and in a way they're expressed each time we meet. Last week we looked at gospel community and how it is the church is to be a taste of heaven here at ABC. If you were not here, I'd encourage you to go listen to that. Today we're going to shift our attention to prayer, specifically the value of prayerful dependence and prayer as ministry. 
One of the misconceptions that I hope to deconstruct today is this idea that prayer is a prelude to ministry. Prayer is the pregame show to the real game, whatever that may be. For example, maybe you have a friend or a family member who's not turned to faith in Christ. Uh, maybe you've got a date on the calendar to go meet with them, have lunch or coffee with them, and, and share the gospel with them. But before you do, you pray for them. Which act do we tend to see as more influential? The prayer offered before the conversation or the conversation itself? Don't we tend to see the conversation as more influential on the outcome than the prayer offered beforehand? Should we view it that way? This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three aspects to prayer as ministry. First, an overlooked aspect of prayer, why this is a game changer, and an encouragement to pray. An overlooked aspect to prayer, why this is a game changer, and I'll conclude with a brief encouragement to pray. First, an overlooked aspect to prayer, Romans chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Um, look at that with me. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Okay, what is Paul's struggle? Well, he's about to embark on a missionary endeavor and the challenges are twofold. On the one hand, he's facing threats from unbelievers in Judea and the other is that he's, there's some kind of tension in the relationship between him and the believers in Jerusalem. So he is praying that this contribution he's bringing to them would be favorably received. Okay, so he's got a two-fold struggle, he says. I've got a struggle, and it's two-fold. It's from unbelievers, it's from believers. Here's what's striking about Paul's language. When he says, join me. In this, in my struggle, join me in my struggle, he is not calling Christians in Rome to travel 2,500 miles to Judea. He's not calling for that. Join me is not a call to leave their homes. But by praying, they unite themselves with him in the difficulties facing him. Paul is saying, when you pray for me in this thing that's about to happen, you throw yourselves into the ministry trenches with me. He does not separate prayer from the physical ministry he has to do in Jerusalem. He sees his physical work in Judea and prayer as part of the same struggle. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. It is not the pregame show. It is the game. He's saying by praying, the believers in Rome unite themselves with him in his ministry endeavors. Look, as Americans, we are prone to giving superior value to visible, concrete, material action. 
And we're prone to giving inferior value to invisible, immaterial spiritual devotion. To state it baldly, here's what our posture is towards prayer. I'm going through a struggle. You're going to pray for me? Well, that's nice. But what are you going to do about it? Isn't that our sentiment? You listen to my problem, you say, I'll pray for you. Well, that's nice. But what are you going to do about it? That sentiment is repugnant. It suggests that prayer is secondary, substandard. If you believe prayer is runner-up to physical, concrete action, you're actually living in a functionally atheistic world. You're a functional atheist. A failure to give prayer its full dignity is a failure to treat God as God. A failure to see prayer as frontline in the trenches action is a failure to acknowledge the God who rules and superintends over the world and the minutia of your life. Paul is saying that when you pray, you're transporting yourselves hundreds of miles away and getting in the ministry trenches with him. Prayer is doing something. Prayer is ministry. Now, how does that value connect with our vision? Very simple. Praying that generations would be captivated with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ is as necessary to seeing that happen as preaching and teaching on it. Now look, this isn't the only place where prayer is described this way. Let me show you a couple of other places so you see it. This is not incidental to Paul's thinking. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril... And he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So in the previous section context, previous section Paul's alluded to some kind of devastating experience he had in Asia In his language, it was the equivalent of dying, and God's gracious rescue was the equivalent of being raised from the dead. Paul goes on to say that he is hopeful of God's continuing deliverance with the help of prayer. He sees prayer as helpful in bringing about visible, concrete results. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry, it is ministry. One more, Philippians 1, 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You see how Paul sees prayer as possessing real-world effects. It has a power to affect the real world. It's not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. When we pray, we join others in their actual struggle. We get in the trenches with them. We join them in their difficulties. 
Okay, so what? So what should we do in response to this? Two quick takeaways. Number one, (laughs) be quick to pray. Be fast to pray. Be quick to pray. Be fast to pray with people. Last week we talked about gospel community and uh, the necessary attribute of gospel community, which is spiritual friendship. And we looked at six signs of spiritual friendship. Friends share. We share feelings. We share things. We share faith. We share decisions. We share time. We share commitment. And as we grow to share these things with each other, this goes hand in hand. Let's be quick to pray with each other over the things that we're sharing. I hope you're quick to pray with other believers here at church on Sundays. When you're talking here in the worship center, when you're out in the lobby, you're in the parking lot, and someone's sharing something with you, I hope you're quick to pray with them. In your life groups, those you are in those, when someone is sharing a burden, when someone's sharing something that's heavy on their hearts, or something you're rejoicing in, be quick to pray with them. Be quick to pray. If prayer is ministry, prayer is never a waste of time. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's always a splendid use of time. One of my favorite Christian artists is Stephen Curtis Chapman. I think he has written and continues to write um, lyrics that are very thoughtful. Years ago, he wrote a song called Let Us Pray, and he sums up the call to action in his lyrics. He says, I hear you say your heart is aching. You've got trouble in the making. And you ask if I'll be praying for you, please. And in keeping with convention, I'll say yes, with good intentions. To pray later, (laughs) making mention of your needs. Don't we do that? Someone shares a, a burden they've got, oh, I'll be praying for you. Yeah? When? When? We feel like that's the thing we're supposed to say. Oh, that sounds really tough. Oh, I'll pray for you. That's, it's like a place filler. This is what he's summing up. Look at the last two lines of, of this, this verse. He says, but since we have this moment, this moment here at heaven's door, we should start knocking now. What are we waiting for? Let us pray, let us pray everywhere and every way, every moment of the day, it is the right time. For the Father above, he is listening with love and he wants to answer us, so let us pray. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry, it is ministry, so be quick to pray. Be quick to pray with people. Second action item, receive prayer as ministry done on behalf of others and you. This takes two sides, not just the person who's quick to pray and understands prayer is ministry, but it also takes the person on the other side receiving maybe this this ministry to say, I receive this as full-fledged primary, not secondary ministry. It's not second-class action. In each of the passages that we looked at, prayer sees Paul sees prayer as joining with him, participating with him, getting in the trenches with him, whatever challenges and difficulty he's facing. So when someone prays for you, they are providing you with practical help. Receive it that way. When someone prays with you, for you, you're receiving practical help. 
receive it that way. In another song by Chapman, On Prayer, he writes, I will not pretend to feel the pain you're going through. I know I cannot comprehend the hurt you've known. And I used to think it mattered if I understood, but now I just don't know. Well, I'll admit sometimes I still wish I knew what to say. And I keep looking for a way to fix it all. But we know we're at the mercy of God's higher ways. And our ways are so small. But I will carry you to Jesus. He is everything you need. I will carry you to Jesus on my knees. It's such a privilege for me to give this gift to you. All I'd ever hope you give me in return is to know that you'll be there to do the same for me when the tables turn. I will carry you to Jesus. He's everything you need. I will carry you to Jesus on my knees. someone prays for you and with you, they are carrying you to Jesus. When you pray for believers hundreds of miles away, you are carrying them to Jesus. When you pray for the lost people of southeast Wisconsin or our nation, you are carrying them to Jesus. What more practical help can you offer? When you pray for someone, you're carrying them to Jesus. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. Be quick to pray with people. And be quick to receive prayer as ministry done on behalf of others in you. Second, why this is a game changer. Since prayer is ministry and since prayer is practical help, that should change what we pray for. We're we're prone, when we're honestly evaluating our prayer lives, we are prone to praying only for those things that we can do something about or praying only for those things that we are physically connected to. Are we not? Of course, the side effect of this is that we pray local And we pray small, but we don't pray global, and we don't pray big. And this will happen if we don't see prayer as ministry. If we see prayer as Paul did, as joining with others in their struggles, no matter their geographic location, no matter our ability to physically do something about it, we should be quick to pray for people in situations we're disconnected from or can do little about. One of the very best ways to see this is to look at Paul's prayers. Let me show you a list. This list of passages contain Paul's prayers. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when studying the, the letters of Paul, but he lays out there for you how he's praying for specific churches and Christians. It's very detailed. All of these are prayers. He's pulling the curtain to let you see inside his prayer, private prayer life. 
I would encourage you to read those and make note of what Paul prays for in these passages. We're going to take one. We're going to take the Colossians 1 passage, 9 to 14. Let me read this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So you go through this passage. What do you see him praying for? I'll tick it off here for you. He, he prays that God would fill the believers with a knowledge of his will. He prays for them to live a life pleasing to God. He prays that they would bear fruit in good works. He prays that they would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. He prays that they would be strengthened to display endurance and patience in their spiritual journey. He prays that they would give joyful thanks to the Father. And he's praying for Christians he's never met before. Paul didn't start the church in Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Many of these Christians have never met him before. He's praying all these things for people he's never met before. So let's ask ourselves some questions. When's the last time you prayed for Christians you've not met before? When's the last time you prayed for Christians you've never met before? Or maybe you only heard about them, and you, but you prayed for them. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you prayed for Christians you have met before, but when you prayed... You prayed that they would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. When's the last time you prayed for a Christian friend that they would live a life pleasing to God? Or when's the last time you prayed for a family member that they would learn to give joyful thanks to the Father for the salvation he's graciously given us? It's amazing to me to see how Paul prays. And it makes sense that he would pray that way because he sees prayer as uniting himself to those who are in the trenches of whatever challenge or situation they're living through. So for example, he, he gives thanks that the Christians in Thessalonica possess a deepening trust in God. He prays for the Christians in Philippi that their love for each other would abound more and more. For the Christians in Ephesus, he prays that they would be able to grasp the width, length, height, and depth of God's love for them. He's praying big. Why? Because he believes prayer actually does something. It is ministry. It's a vehicle for accomplishing these things. Prayer is ministry. So let that change the way you pray. Start praying the way Paul did. Pray that our love for one another would abound more and more as he did for the church in Philippi. Pray that we all would grow in the knowledge of the Lord as he did for the Christians in Colossae. Pray that Christians around the country, around the world, would live lives that are pleasing to God. Make that part of your prayer life. 
pray that we all would be able to grow in our ability to grasp the magnitude of God's love for us. Pray for Christians you've never met before. The Australian uh, Christian author and speaker, John Dixon, came to Christ through the faithful witness of an ordinary middle-aged mother named Glenda. In Australia, the public schools at that time used to offer a scripture class taught by a volunteer from a local church, and Glenda became his teacher. Eventually, Glenda invited the whole class to her house on Friday afternoons for lunch and honest conversation about Jesus. Dixon, reflecting on this time, writes this. He says, so we went back the next Friday and the next Friday and the next Friday. Slowly but surely, the Jesus stuff became as important as the food. So we came with more and more friends. And some of these 15-year-olds were the worst sinners in the school. But Glenda just opened her heart every Friday afternoon and treated us all like we were family. There was one night when my friend Daniel was rather intoxicated, and we knew we couldn't take him to his house. His dad was an army man, and he would be livid, but we didn't want to leave him on the street. So we all said, let's take him to Glenda's house. She'll have him. She'll clean him up. It was near midnight. We knocked on the door. It turned out she was finishing up some kind of dinner party with lots of guests, but she didn't bat an eye. She welcomed us in, showed us straight past her guests to the back of the house. She went and got some spare clothes and said, throw them in the shower, clean them up, and just put them to bed. We'll sort it out in the morning. So we did. The next morning, we went back to Glenda's house at around 10 a.m. to pick up Daniel. He was sitting at the kitchen table, and Glenda was making him bacon and eggs, and they were having a good old chat. We took Daniel to Glenda's house because she had left a real impression on us that Christians actually like sinners. We had no doubt that she hated our drinking habits. She was a teetotaler and talked openly about avoiding alcohol. But even in that situation, her first instinct was not to condemn us, but to love us more. And it was extraordinary. About six months of scripture classes, Friday afternoon events, and the incident with Daniel we found ourselves thinking that Jesus was real. That he's inescapable. That he's powerful. So after about six or eight months into it, about five of us became Christians. We really surrendered to Christ's lordship and accepted his mercy. Years later, I was starting my own ministry and trying to explore new modes of reaching people. So my first thought was, I'll go to Glenda. I'll ask her what her secret was. Since several of us had become Christians through her influence, I figured she must have some strategy. I went to her fully expecting her to tell me about some program she implant, implemented or some particular way she had of sharing the gospel. But without batting an eye, she looked at me and she said, prayer. I was really disappointed. But she continued, that year, a bunch of us who taught scripture decided to make it a year of prayer, just to plead with the Lord of the harvest to do something special. And we did. By the end of the year, there you all were, confessing Jesus. 
prayer is ministry. It's doing something. Let me leave you very briefly with an encouragement to pray. Romans 8, verse 26, Paul again says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I know some of you listen to this, you're probably overwhelmed by it. Maybe you feel like you're not quite there to measure up with what the call to actions are. I hope this verse is an encouragement to you. It's an enormously helpful verse. The Spirit knows we're weak. That we struggle to pray. That we don't always know what to pray for. But the Spirit's desire is to help us. So look, you don't have to pretend to be a prayer giant. We don't need to make resolutions that are out of our league. Since the Spirit knows we're weak, we can be real with God in prayer. Folks, sometimes we just need to learn to stammer out what's on our hearts. Sometimes we have to just learn to stammer out what's on our hearts. We just need to get it out there without trying to be impressive. The Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit prays what we would actually pray for if we knew everything God knows. I hope that encourages you to pray. Let's pray. God, help us embrace our position in the universe. We are finite. We are created, contingent beings. Help us embrace this position in the universe by being quick to pray. Quick to acknowledge you as God. Quick to express our dependency on you and our faith in you through prayer. We are needy and therefore in constant need of communing with you in prayer. God, show us the place you've assigned prayer. You have given it dignity. You've given it power. And therefore, as we pray, we are engaging in ministry. God, I pray that you would give us your agenda in prayer. We would learn to pray both local and global, both small and big. Thank you for your Spirit's work and interceding for us when we don't know what to pray for. You're a good God. And we worship you for that. Amen. Amen.